Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Amen. It just seems particularly wobbly tonight for some reason. But that's all right. On Christ the solid rock I stand. On other ground the sinking sand. You'll stand with me and turn to Acts chapter 24. I'm going to read the first nine verses of chapter 24 to get started, and we'll endeavor to get through 24. Don't forget tomorrow night prayer at the church, 7.30. Friday night, family game night, 7.30. Saturday, whatever you do on Saturdays. Sunday here, church, twice, twice. We still have church twice on Sundays right now. Amen. Acts 24, verse number one. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus who informed the governor against Paul and when he was called forth Tertullus, Tertullius began to accuse him saying seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence we accept it always and in all places most noble Felix of all thankfulness notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words for we have found this man a pestilent fellow the mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes who also have gone about to profane the temple whom we took and would have judged according to our law but the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him the Jews also assented saying that these things were so these things were so tonight I want to talk a little while by question form question form title this tonight who's who's on trial who's on trial because on the surface what seems to be apparent is the apostle Paul's on trial but I think if we read through the story we come to understand really it's those that have brought him to this trial the accusers and even the governor Felix himself that are really the ones that are on trial I want to talk about four different things tonight for all those who like bullet points. Here you go. Four things tonight. No accusers, no accusations. That's number one. No advocate, no problem. That's number two. Number three, no resurrection, no judgment. That's number, that's number three. Number four, no conscience, no convenience. That's, that's number four. Amen. We go to the Lord in prayer. Who's on trial here this evening? Father, I come to you tonight. 
God, I'm grateful, Lord Jesus, God, for being able to gather in this place, God, that we, Lord, have health in our bodies to be able to come here, Lord, and honor you and worship you. I pray, oh God, that you're able to touch our minds anew and afresh. I pray, oh Lord, let your word become alive to us, Lord Jesus, in this setting, Lord God, of Bible study tonight. I pray, oh Lord Jesus, you're able to help us, God, Lord, to understand. Help us, Lord, to apply, God, where it is, Lord, relevant, Jesus, for our lives. In Jesus' name that I pray, amen and amen. The church say amen. You may be seated tonight in Jesus' name. So who's on trial? So I want you, I want you to really consider this as we go through chapter 24 here tonight because all evidence would point toward Paul but I believe that it's those that have brought him into this arena and those that are hearing him that are possibly more so on trial than the Apostle Paul. He's on trial with things that uh, cannot even be laid to his charge, but the things that he returns to them are things that can be laid to their charge, and that is basically what they're going to do with Christ. What are they going to do with the gospel and the message that Paul is teaching and that he is preaching. The last chapter ended, chapter 23 ended with an assertion from the governor, from the assertion from Felix whenever Paul was brought to him in his jurisdiction. He told Paul, he told Paul that he would hear him whenever his accusers were come because accusations had to be made in the presence of the accused. If you were going to accuse someone, then you had to do it in the presence of the accused. So if you did not have, if Paul didn't have any accusers, then there would be no accusations. And the Bible says that Ananias, the high priest, the one who had had Paul's mouth marked or basically punched in the face for layman's terms, had his mouth marked. He came along with some of the elders. They came about five days later because Felix said, if there's going to be any accusation, the accuser is going to have to come in order to do this. But in reality, although Ananias and the elders came, they're really not the ones that started this whole, uh, this whole trial, if you will, against Paul. They are not really the initial accusers of the Apostle Paul. The initial accusers are those Jews that were from Asia, those that always seemed to be the ones that were causing up trouble. They were notorious for stirring up trouble for the Apostle Paul, and they had accused him back in Acts 21. They had accused those Jews of Asia, had accused him of, of telling and teaching all men against the Jews, against the law of Moses, and against the city of Jerusalem. And they had also uh, supposed that the Apostle Paul had profaned the temple at Jerusalem because they thought he had taken a Gentile man past that area where Gentiles were permitted. And so they are really the initial accusers, not necessarily Ananias, the high priest, and the elders. Nevertheless, uh, those Asian uh, Jews are, are lacking. They are not present. And so Paul, even in his defense against, uh, with the accusations that were brought against him, in his defense, he points out very plainly that the real accusers were not present. He states in Acts 24 and verse 18, it says, Whereupon certain Jews, Paul is saying, from Asia, found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, uh, verse 19, who ought to have been here. 
In other words, he's saying if they had something to say, if they had some type of accusation against me and they wanted it to stick, they should be here. They should be here before thee to and object. They should object to even what I'm telling you right now. He says if they had sought, if they had ought against me. So uh, basically what Paul's saying, these accusations that are brought and that they even have, they can't even really legally be made without the Jews from Asia being here to make them, being here to try to charge me of these matters because in reality, it's those Jews of Asia that are responsible for this whole thing. And for that matter, as initially stated, they should have been here to state them if they really did have a charge. And what was common in that culture in that hour was this. Uh, If a person, if the accusers kind of disappeared from the trial or they didn't show up for the trial, it many times meant that there would be a withdrawal then of the charge against the person of whatever the accuser had brought at one time that it would no longer stay intact if they did not show up for the trial themselves and perhaps that's what the apostle Paul is getting at here is that if I don't have an accuser I don't have an accusation against me and so how will we bring that home to ourselves is this we understand as being children of God that we are under constant accusations of our adversary. And he is constantly bringing accusations against us. A few Sunday mornings, I believe it was ago, that I even uh, alluded to the, the scripture in Revelation 12 about how the accuser of the brethren, which the devil is known for, he accuses us day and night before the Lord. But in reality, his accusations, we know, because he's a liar and the father of it and, and there's no truth in him. His accusations are false and they're unfounded because his accusations for the most part deal with our past which have already been forgiven by the Lord and put under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, you know how it is. Although the enemy of your soul accuses you, it doesn't keep us from feeling like we must constantly be on the defense no matter that his accusations may not hold any water in a bucket, so to speak. We still feel like, as Christians, as forgiven Christians, we feel, whenever he brings up our past, that we have to be on defense for ourselves, just like the Apostle Paul was defending himself in Acts 24. We feel like we need to explain away the accusations that the enemy is bringing again although they were something that was a part of our past because as he does he constantly brings those things to our attention he constantly brings those things to the forefront of our mind and we find it difficult to live in our present world with false accusations of the past constantly bombarding us constantly being brought up to us but I have good news for you tonight I want you to take heart in the Holy Ghost as Paul dispelled the accusations that were against him due to the accusers were not present to object or bring the accusations against him the Bible informs us of a day still yet in the future of when the devil that did deceive them all shall be cast in the lake of fire along with the beast and the false prophet in fire and brimstone. And when there's no accuser, 
There's no accusation. Amen. Amen. Tonight, since these Jews were coming before the Roman governor, Felix, and they were coming in a Roman court of law, they must have thought, and this must be the reason they did what they did, but they must have thought that it would be best to secure for their side a prosecuting attorney that was acquainted with Roman law. So they employed a man by the name of Tertullus. And he is called in Scripture, in chapter, in verse number one, he's called an orator. He's called an orator, which in the Greek means he's a spokesperson or he is an advocate. He's an advocate. I can't even say this tonight. Tertullus follows the pattern of a smooth-tongued prosecuting attorney. He begins the case before Felix, knowing just how to work the Roman court system because he starts with all of these flatteries toward the governor, toward Felix. He tells him, that we, the people, enjoy great quietness because of you. A little pat on the back there, Felix. He tells them that there's some worthy deeds that have been done to the nation because of you. Man, you want to talk about, you know, there's something going on here with uh, Tertullius and what he's doing here with Felix. He's being sly, smooth-tongued attorney. He, he tells them, as a matter of fact, he said, we all benefit. We all benefit from the things that, that you have done and accomplished. And we're thankful. We're thankful for him that you're the guy. You're the man. And so just kind of laying it on thick. And no doubt there was some truth. But, you know, flattery kind of goes above and beyond the truth. And, and Felix was known for clearing the territory of robbers and murderers and so on and so forth. But other historians also tell us that Felix was an individual on more than one occasion, he even employed a group of, of assassins for his own purpose. So uh, to get rid of the murders and then employ the murders for your own purpose, there's a little, little uh, governmental, political garbage going on even in Acts 24. And so nevertheless, Tert uh, Tertullus continues and he assures Felix he says I want you to know we're here and we know you're a busy man I'm saying my own language you're a busy man and we're not going to take up a bunch of your time and so with that being said he goes straight to the point of the accusations against Paul and I think also letting him know it's not going to take a, we're not here to take a bunch of your time I think he's also underscoring the fact that you know what it's not going to take very long for us to convince you the misdeeds of Paul. If it's not going to take much time, then it's going to be, you're going to be able to be pretty well easily convinced of what we're saying. And so he brings the charges against Paul in verses 5 through 6. Now remember, this is the advocate, the, the orator, the spokesperson for Ananias, the high priest, and the elders that came down. And these are the charges against Paul, verses 5 through 6. You can read of them there. Number one, Felix, he's a pestilent fellow. I like that. I just like how that sounds. He's a pestilent fellow. Almost sounds like Shakespearean. He's a pestilent, and that's almost that's almost in a certain degree just a personal opinion. He's a pestilent fellow. Not only that, he's a mover of sedition, and he leads a sect of people by the name of the Nazarenes. And so now he's moved from a personal charge to a more political charge: sedition, 
uh, a leader of a sect of the Nazarenes. I'll tell you why in a moment that that's a political thing. Number three, and he profaned the temple. Remember, that's a supposition. But he profaned the temple, a religious charge that is brought against him. So uh, Tertullus wants to make Felix think that, you know what, Felix? You wouldn't even be troubled with us being here right now, Paul being in your charge, all of us standing here right now with this trial. You wouldn't be troubled about any of that had it not been for the chief captain, Elias, because whenever he came, we were on the verge of taking him into our court and we were going to try him and we'd have charged him and we'd taken care of business. But because of Elias' coming, he said, now he's in your curtain. We're standing before you. It's taking your time. He kind of threw Elias under the bus a little bit. Amen. Saying that had he not come, we'd already had this matter taken care of you, taken care of for you, Felix. But since this trial is in Rome and it's before Rome, Here is this master prosecuting attorney that decides he's going to couch the real reasons of why Paul is there with some political things such as sedition and other things such as leading the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, the reason why that's a big thing is because Judaism, Judaism, the religion of Judaism was accepted in Rome. As a matter of fact, it was one of the... More, more or less one of the only religions that was accepted by the Roman government. They had given it its stamp of approval. Amen. The serving and the worshiping of their God. Amen. Their stamp of approval. But in order for another religion to come in to serve anything else or to do anything else, they needed the endorsement of the Roman government. And so if there's another religion that's starting to spawn over here and don't have the endorsement of the Roman government, well, that's absolutely wrong. And so here the, the prosecuting attorney wants Felix to consider that, that Paul here is doing something wrong politically against the Roman government and hoping that Felix would concentrate on those particular accusations. But the Bible says this. Look at it now. Acts 24 and verse number 10. And what I am considering here right now is no advocate, no problem. Because when we start in verse number 10, Paul is now going to represent himself on the defense side of this trial. The Bible says, Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned to him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge, that's what Paul says, unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Now Paul doesn't, (laughs) he doesn't lavish all kinds of stuff, you know, upon him. He just states very plainly, you've been a governor for a long time happy for you he says but I, I am more cheerfully to answer for myself he said because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship now what it appears like here is that the apostle Paul had no court appointed attorney he didn't have money to secure an attorney and so what you do in those matters even today you represent yourself and so Paul had no defense attorney, so he spoke for himself, and he oftentimes spoke for himself. So this is in a place that he had not been in, in before. As a matter of fact, he says, I'm cheerfully to, 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 to answer for myself. And so the Jews had Tertullius, amen, the prosecuting attorney, but Paul had no one. Or did he? Because the Bible says in 1 John 2 and verse 1, John speaks and says, My little children... These things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, John, through his scripture, tells us you might not have a defense attorney, if you will. You might not have somebody from the bar with, uh, that's past the bar that's in your corner, and it may seem by all appearances that you're representing yourself. But if you have the Spirit of the Lord and Jesus Christ of right matter, he says there is an advocate, there is an orator, there is a spokesperson for one and for all. So just when it looked like the apostle Paul was appearing before the court and had no representation beyond himself he had an advocate and his name was Jesus Christ they might have had theirs but so Paul had his as well because the word advocate the word advocate in this setting of scripture amen is the same word for the comforter that the Bible speaks of in John 14 it's paracolite it's a comforter. Speaking of, remember what John 14 said, the comforter which is the Holy Ghost. Amen. That, that word means it comes to aid or it comes to help. It comes alongside another. It comes to the defense of another. So Paul had a counselor. Paul had an advocate by virtue of having the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which he did. He had an advocate that was interceding for his wrongs and his presumed wrongs of the people. And can I tell us tonight that we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. When nobody else is going to stand in your defense and when it seems like you're standing for your own defense, you have an advocate. That will come alongside you, help you, aid you, defend you. So no advocate, no problem. Thirdly here tonight, though, let's consider no resurrection, no judgment. If I may continue reading in Acts 24 and verse number 11. Let me back up there and start. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days. This is Paul talking to Felix. Since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogue nor in the city. See what he's doing there? He's coming against every accusation that's been laid to him. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess. So he's against everything that they've accused him of, but he has a confession to make. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call hearsay, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust. And he says, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here, which I've read and you're hearing already, before thee and object if they had ought against me, or else let the same here say if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council. He said, except it be for this one voice that I cried among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. Paul starts out with his defense. He said, it's been 12 days since I've been in Jerusalem and worshiped in the temple. And as a matter of fact, if you consider it took five days 
after Felix said the accusers need to show up, it said after five days, Ananias, verse number one did, after five days, Ananias and the elders came down, then that tells us that Paul was only in Jerusalem for a week. A week. Now, how much havoc can one guy do in a week? So he's 12, he's 12 days since he's been in Jerusalem, but they had to wait after he got there to where Felix was at least five days for them to go. So we're talking about a week that he's been in. That's not much time to do everything that seemingly that they are accusing him of. And he disputes. He, he comes against what they have said. He said, I did not. He said, I did not dispute with any man in the temple. He said, I did not disturb the people of Jerusalem in their synagogues or in their city. For that matter, he, he stands flat footed and tells, I don't know if it's flat footed, but nevertheless, he stood flat footed and he told them, you can't prove any of these current accusations against me. He says, but out of everything you can't charge against me, I'm going to give you a confession. He says, I confess that after the way, remember that, that was oftentimes the, the, the way that uh, Christianity was described in New Testament scripture, just summed up in those two words, the way. We still do it today, you know, we do. Man, we're following in the way of the Lord. Or, you know, we talk about people being in the way. Well, that's another story in some respects. That's kind of ambiguous. But <laughs> being in the way or being in, in, in Christianity, so on and so forth. He said, after that way which they call hearsay, so worship I the God of uh, my fathers. In other words, Paul says, I deny all these accusations that's been laid against me except for being convicted of worshiping the God of my fathers. Now, who are the God? What is the God of Paul's fathers? Well, the same way that it's stated over and over again in the Old Testament Scripture. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the Old Testament law, the God of the Old Testament for that matter. He says, I will take and confess that I am a worshiper of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of my fathers. And they, these people that are accusing me, they call the way. They call Christianity the way, heresy. Or literally, heresy is this literally in the Greek, a sect, S-E-C-T. But Paul contests that it is the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the Old Testament law talked about. They say that it has no stamp of approval of the law, that it has no stamp of approval of their societies or their Judaism, but I am just simply following the way, and it's the way of the God of my fathers. For that matter, more plainly, the way even for Paul in the New Testament was the way Jesus Christ. But the Bible tells us in John 14 and verse 6, whenever Jesus is speaking to Timothy, or Thomas rather, in the New Testament Scripture, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In other words, in Paul's mind, and what he was trying to convey in the mind of those Jews and those people, is that Jesus is the way. And that Jesus that is the way is the way of the God of his fathers, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God, Paul is saying that he worshiped the God of his fathers by honoring, by reverencing, by following Jesus Christ. 
He's making a connection for them. Because again, the Jews was thinking Jesus Christ being a separate entity from God or being an additional God to the God of the Old Testament. No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, I'm following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by following Jesus Christ because that God is enfleshed in that man. Yes, Jesus Christ. He says, so I'm following the way of the Old Testament. I'm following the way of that which you prescribe. I think it's also important to denote tonight that not only, quote unquote, the way, not only, not only the way being, for instance, Christianity or being an experience, but the Greek word for the way denotes a path or a road. Yeah, well, that's evident. You didn't really, you could have went to Webster for that one. I think what's important then for New Testament believers, whenever they thought of the way, it wasn't just an experience that they received, but it was a road that they walked. A path that they walked. Why is that important? Because some people want to stop with their experience. Punch, punch my card. I've had it. The way is more than just your experience that you received at an altar of prayer. The way is about maturing down the road, walking the path. Well, someone's saying, Paul said, I, I, it's the God of the fathers. And not only that, I believe in the things that the law wrote about. And I believe in the things that the prophets wrote about. He, everybody say, he's setting them up. So I believe in all the things that they wrote about in the law and everything that they wrote out in the prophets. Boy, this is sounding pretty good. <laughs> and he says, for that matter, he said, the Jews, the Jews allowed the same thing, a hope, a hope toward God. They allow the writings of the law and the writings of the prophets, that, that hope toward God, and then he gives them the puncher. He says, even the hope of the resurrection to the just and the unjust. Paul, you're doing really good, man. We, it's like, you know, we're preaching with you. Yeah, go, Paul. He mentions that. It's like, huh? Yeah. So you said you believe the law and the prophets and everything that's written, yeah, yeah, and that they should have a hope in God and because the Jews have a hope in God, you believe just the same, yeah, yeah, and a hope of a resurrection of the just and the unjust? Yes. Someone say yes. said, you all believe in the law and the prophets? I believe in the law and the prophets. Perhaps one of the oldest books of the Bible, the book of Job. Job asked a question one time, I think it's Job 14, but he asked a question. He said, if a man die, shall he live again? <laughs> and he follows that up with a few chapters later in Job 19. You can put up for me in verse 25. Job says, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And he says, and though, everybody say after, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, Skin worms destroy this body. What is that? That is deterioration. That is your body decomposing, going back to the dust from whence it came. He said, after skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh 
What kind of flesh? Because the Bible talks about in Corinthians that whenever we die, it's just like a seed. If it's buried, if it resurrects, it will not be the same as it was when it was buried. You put a seed, you put an acorn in the ground, it comes out from the ground in a different form than it went into the ground. That's the way with anybody that dies and is resurrected and everybody's going to die and resurrect. He said, uh, he said, after the skin worms have already taken my flesh, he says, yet in my flesh, what type of flesh? A different kind a body a different kind from that that went down into the ground in my flesh shall I see God what are you alluding to Job I'm saying there is a life after death there is a resurrection Paul said you all believe in that he says I do too someone say amen said you believe in the prophets he said I believe in the prophets I believe I'm just going along here you play with me he said I believe in the prophets Daniel 12 too I believe in it Daniel said and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt what are you talking about Daniel I'm talking about a resurrection I'm talking about one resurrection to everlasting life being the rapture of the church but I'm talking about another resurrection for all of the wicked dead unto judgment he says, I believe, Daniel, you're a prophet. You spoke about resurrection. You all Jews believe in that? I believe in that. Oh, yes, yeah, someone say amen. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they rise. Arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. I could work this one a little bit for you, but I'm trying not to get in too deep. But dead men shall live and arise with his dead body. Let me put it this way. Dead men shall live as a result of his death and resurrection. In other words, because of his resurrection, all mankind will be resurrected either to the just or to the unjust, to everlasting life or to contempt. Now, I, I am going to say this because sure enough, somebody would say, Brother McGee's taking the scripture out of context and that's just something I hate. Hate, 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 double hate, totally loathe. His body, his body is referring to Isaiah, Isaiah is the speaker here. He's speaking of Isaiah. But Isaiah is a part of a greater conglomerate of people here known as the nation of Israel. All right? Known as the nation of Israel. For that matter, and I'm just doing this just for me, you know, clarity of mind, for me. Because sure enough, someone will try to pin me down on it, and I just can't stand stuff like this. The nation of Israel, when we go to the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the antitype to Israel. Case in point. In Matthew 2, in verse number 15, the Bible says, and was there until the death of Herod. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. Whenever he had to go down into Egypt, the Bible says he was in Egypt. You can read it in your Bibles, Matthew 2, 25, or 2, 15, above it and below it, that Jesus Christ was there until the death of Herod. Whenever he died, then he was able to leave. Amen. The, 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 the risk was gone. Remember, because he was going through killing all the babies. Remember all that? All right. Look what it says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. Well, who came out of Egypt in the Old Testament scripture? Israel. In the New Testament, though, Jesus parallels that. 
by as a child going down into Egypt and then coming up out of Egypt after the threat of Herod was gone. Jesus then is a parallel to Israel. So with all that being said, when you look at Isaiah, we're not just reading about Isaiah and the nation of Israel here when it's talking about his body. We're talking about something that is a double fulfillment, not just for this hour, but for an hour to come. Talking about Jesus' body. So when we understand that, dead men shall live and arise uh huh, with his dead body, or that which was dead but is now alive and living due to the resurrection. Isaiah wrote that. That's a prophet. You all believe that? Paul says, I do too. Furthermore, when we look at Hebrews 11, well, that's New Testament scripture, Brother McGee. Yeah, but it has an Old Testament reference here. Hebrews 11 and verse number 17. By faith. Everybody say faith. Anybody ever heard of Abraham? Huh? Is he the father of the Jews? Pretty important guy, right, to the Jews? By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now look at verse 19. That's what he says. Accounting that. Who is? Abraham. Abraham accounting that God was able to raise him up. Even from the dead. From whence also he received him in a figure. You know what that's telling me? Even Father Abraham accounted that God was able to raise up Isaac from the dead if necessary. In other words, Abraham offered Isaac on that altar of sacrifice on Moriah. He offered that only begotten son because he believed in a resurrection. So if you guys, he said you haven't quibbles with a resurrection. He said the father of your nation believed enough in a resurrection. He put his only begotten son on the altar and said God can raise him up if that. Woo! Says I, I believe in that. Paul denounces all this stuff he confesses then he's a worshiper of the God of his fathers and that he believed in the hope of God and believed in the scriptures of the prophets and of the law and believed in the hope of a resurrection and after Paul denounced all these things and he denounced them of course because the Jews of Asia were not there to stake their claim or stake their peace he gets again to the very core of things in verse 21 again. He says, except it be for this one voice that I cried, standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. He said, this is really where it all gets down to, the fact of a resurrection, because all we have here right now is Ananias and the elders. We don't have the Jews that, that said he profaned the temple and all this. All we have here is Ananias and them, and it was among them where he divided the, the Pharisees from the Sadducees by saying, I believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees, well, we believe in a resurrection too. Sadducees, we don't believe in a resurrection. Remember the division? He says, so that's really what we're really with. The ones that are here with the accusers that are here, this is really the problem that we're contending with, the resurrection of the dead. The Bible says, Acts 17 and verse 30. We've looked at this. This is whenever Paul was at Mars Hill. This is whenever he was among the Athenians. And he says, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. What's this telling me? It's telling me all men everywhere should repent 
because judgment is coming. And here's the way that I know judgment is coming. Because he's got a standard that he's going to use for judgment. The standard he's going to use for judgment is the man Jesus Christ. It's the man Jesus Christ. And this is the reason why we know judgment is coming. Because God raised his standard up from death. God resurrected Christ Jesus from the dead. And so judgment is sure because the resurrection happened. You hear me? Judgment is sure because the resurrection happened. So here's the thing. If there's no resurrection, you don't have to worry about a judgment. And some, listen to your pastor tonight, some, and and maybe not so much so today, but definitely in that hour, some are not worried about judgment because they're uncertain whether he ever resurrected. Yes, because if you can keep him in the grave, you don't have to worry about judgment because there's no standard then for it. But if he got up out of the grave, you have the standard, and so there's going to be judgment. So I know I said a little backwards tonight, no resurrection, no judgment, but the flip of it is true. If there is a resurrection, there's going to be a judgment. And so Paul was relating to them, you believe in the law and the prophets? So do I. You believe in the God of your fathers? So do I. But the law and the prophets spoke of a resurrection. And if he resurrected, there's going to be a judgment. You better get ready. Someone say yes. You better repent. So if there is a resurrection, boys, since that happened, we're liable to be judged in righteousness by the man Christ Jesus, which the Bible said in Acts 17, which was the man that he ordained. No one said, Lord. And we're moving along quite good here tonight. I'm either going fast or I don't know. But this is all right because I had a lot of ground to carry. Cover, I guarantee you. So now I want you to consider. So we've looked at no accusers, no accusation, no advocate, no problem, no resurrection, no judgment. Now consider no conscience. A few weeks ago we looked at a good conscience remember no conscience no convenience Paul has prioritized here in scripture verse number 16 of Acts 24 he has prioritized that herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man I think it's important I don't think it's happenstance how that is organized ordered prioritized in scripture Void, a conscience void of offense, firstly, toward God and toward man. I think Paul was of the persuasion that if he could hold a clear conscience with God, that that with man would take care of himself if he'd get his God thing taken care of. And therefore, Paul tells them, he says, the main reason that I was in Jerusalem, I know you thought I was stirring up havoc and I was doing all this wrong and misdeeds. 
But he tells him very plainly. It's the only time we ever see him mention this. We see him mention it in the, the epistles in our place. But in the book of Acts, it's the only time he ever mentions verse 17. He tells him, the main reason for me coming to Jerusalem in the first place, I was bringing alms and offerings. I was bringing alms and offerings for the poor of Jerusalem to this nation. So I wasn't there to stir up trouble. I wasn't there to profane the temple. I was, I was doing really what would be in your standard a good deed. And so I come doing that. Now look, look at verse number 22 of Acts 24. I'm going to read till the end. It's not too many verses. So we've had the prosecuting. We've had the defense. Now we're hearing from the judge as it would be. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect, look at this, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, when Lysus, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul, to let him have liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. And after certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned, that is Paul, as he reasoned, of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus, came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to shoot the Jews of pleasure, left Paul bound. Now, this governor Felix, we have something to relate to us right here in verse 22, and I believe also then in verse 24. Felix had a more perfect knowledge of the way, of that way, of this Christianity way that Paul spoke of, more than just what the normal Roman man of his day or hour probably would have had, and I attribute it a lot to because his wife was a Jewess, Drusilla, that perhaps she has informed him in some, some direction or some information and knowledge about the way. Now, what we learned a few weeks ago, I know you've slept, you've ate meals, you've been sick since then. Paul had a more perfect knowledge of the way. What we learned a few weeks ago concerning our conscience is this is that our conscience does not teach us right or wrong. But it either approves or disproves based upon our knowledge and our understanding of that knowledge. What it may approve of of one time after having greater understanding or greater knowledge, it may disapprove of because of the increase of knowledge. So here's Felix. He... He has a more perfect knowledge of the way. And yet, he basically puts off those that are prosecuting, saying that he needs to hear what Lysus has to say, but that chief captain has really already said it in the letter that he had sent to Felix, letting him know that he really didn't know much of anything. And he was sending the Felix so he could find something out. So he's trying to you know, cover all this up. So he's really putting them off. So Felix was really holding Paul, who he knew and many of the others knew that he wasn't guilty of the charges that were laid against him, but he was holding on to Paul with hopes that he might get a little green back in the hand. He was hoping that maybe someone would come and bribe him financially with some money 
pay for Paul's loosing, pay for him being able to go, and he would get financial gain out. So he's going to hold on to Paul, and he'll bring him back several times, hoping that perhaps this, this will happen. But So Felix left Paul. He left him bound, uh, the Bible says, to please the Jews, as the Scripture states. And the reason why he says that is because somewhere historically, in that time frame, somewhere along the way, Felix ruffled the feathers of the Jews. There was, some, there was competition between the Gentiles and the Jews, and, and as a result of this, Felix had sent some Roman soldiers to the aid of the Gentiles. And when that happened, these Roman soldiers came and harmed many of the Jews. History says that there were thousands of Jews that were killed and their homes were looted because Felix gave consent to the Roman soldiers coming in and doing this. Well, whenever that happened to the Jews, they sent reports back to the main campus of Rome and told Rome what Felix had allowed. And so he's kind of on edge with the Jews, so he's keeping Paul where Paul's at, trying to regain their confidence, regain their favor. And he's going to be replaced ultimately, but he's trying to do that. But here's the thing, though. Although Paul was there for two years and he was incarcerated and it was wrong, it was wrong, and Felix knew it was wrong, and many of them that heard Paul speak knew it was wrong. None of this, though, him being there, none of it, was without him having an impression on Felix and his wife, Drusilla. And if I had time right now, I'd preach to you an old sermon that I preached years ago called Quiet Desperation concerning Drusilla, but we don't have the time. You don't have the fortitude. We capitalize, because we preach from the setting scripture, often we capitalize on the fact that Felix trembled, the Bible says, at the message of Paul concerning the faith in Christ. Paul's message, very basic, he had three points. Righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. And so Paul spoke to this couple about righteousness, which they both had failed in. He spoke to them about temperance or self-control, if you will. Again, they both had failed in. He finally talks to them about judgment to come. And when he's talking to them about judgment to come, Here's what judgment to come really boils down to. He's telling them of a time when there are no second chances. He's telling them of a time when the pages of Scripture are fulfilled. He's telling them of a time when the hopes of their forefathers and everything that they had dreamed had looked for comes to fruition. But he tells them of a time when there are no do-overs allowed. He tells them of a night when the morning will not shine again upon them if they're on the opposite side of God. And with that message, Felix, the Bible says, trembles. He literally becomes terrified. He's moved by the message that he has heard. And this is really quite telling because Roman soldiers normally were very stoic and they prided themselves in being able to hide and mask their their emotions. Not on this day and not under these circumstances. He trembled and he was moved. But rather, rather than reacting positively to what he had heard and felt, he dismissed Paul and says, I'll call you when I have a convenient season. I'll call you when I have a convenient season, sometime in the future. In other words, what Felix did was delayed. He postponed something in that moment 
that have, could, could have taken place right there in that instant. But he says, I know it can happen right now, but I'm saying another day at a more convenient season. How in the world? He had more knowledge of that way. The Bible tells us he had more knowledge of that way than what probably the normal man had. But if he could ignore his conscience, he could ignore his conscience, then he wouldn't find convenience for what needed to happen in his life in that moment. Let me say this tonight. Now, I'll land the plane here soon. But the most convenient season for the lost to be found is right now. The most convenient season to repent over sin is right now. The most convenient time to be baptized in Jesus' name is right now. The most convenient time to repent is right now. The most convenient time to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost is right now. The most convenient time to start living for the Lord the way you should be living for the Lord is right now. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2, and I close and you may stand. He says, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored, which means help thee. Behold, everybody say now is the accepted time. Behold, everybody say now. Now is the day of salvation. No, no conscience then you'll not find any convenience in the hour. I didn't know if I was going to turn here, but I think I will just for the fact of it. Romans, Romans 1, verse 28. The Bible says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. You get that? They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. But what does knowledge do? Knowledge raises our accountability of moral wrong and moral right for our conscience. Huh? Said they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So what do they want to do? They want to keep an ignorant conscience. And as a result, the Bible says God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Or they're going to find themselves. They're going to find themselves all kinds of garbage, all kinds of garbage, a natural affection, right? If you go and read the scripture, it's going to show all those different things. Because if you can ignore, if you can sever, if you can debase the conscience, you won't find convenience for the things that need to be convenient. Getting your life right, you'll find things that are inconvenient: sin, sleeping around, lying, cheating whispering, backbiting, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Amen. So, who is on trial? It looked like Paul. But I really think it may have been the Jews and Felix and all those that were doing the trying of Paul. That one. Paul just as kind of went in there and flipped the tables on him. They thought that they were putting him on trial, and he showed up and put them on trial. 
You believe in the law and the prophets? I do too. God, yeah, that's me. They talked about a resurrection. What do you think? I like him. I'm going to call him my friend. We bow our heads in this place tonight. Father, I come to you here to see. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.